This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Hey, my friends. I cannot believe we're coming up on the end of October already. Craziness. In a week and two days, it'll be all about Hallmark Christmas movies for me. But that's a story for another day. We're going to stick with the spooky stuff for at least a couple more weeks. And this week, I'll share my thoughts on Jennifer Hillier's Things We Do in the Dark, Mike Omer's Please Tell Me, Jimmy Giuliano's Dead Eleven, Grady Hendrix's How to Sell a Haunted House, and Jessica Knoll's Bright Young Women. But before we jump into the reviews, you know the drill. We're going to look at some of this week's new releases. First on my list is King of Greed by Anna Wong. This is a steamy marriage in trouble slash second chance romance novel, and it's book three in the Kings of Sin series, but can be read as a standalone from what I understand. Next is I Must Be Dreaming by Roz Chast, a new graphic narrative exploring the surreal nighttime world inside the author's mind and untangling one of our most enduring human dreams. Then we have Filthy Rich Vampire by Geneva Lee, Sensual, dangerous, provocative. Step into a daring new world of dark magic, primal attraction, and breathtaking romance. I would venture to guess there's probably a vampire in there too. Next is Christmas Appeal by Janice Hallett. One dead Santa, a town full of suspects. Will you discover the truth? Who's killing Santa? That's what I want to know. Guess I should read the book and find out. Next is The Queen of Days by Greta Kelly. An epic adventure that weaves together a flawed but lovable family of thieves, a battle between fallen gods, and stakes high enough to cause vertigo. Then we have Dangerous Women by Marc de Castrique. This book stirs up the perfect cocktail of ingenious spycraft and political intrigue of Thomas Perry's The Old Man, brightened with the charming, uncanny energy of killers of a certain age. Then we have What Wild Women Do by Karma Brown. Two women's lives unexpectedly intertwined in this intriguing dual timeline novel. Then we have The Dance Deception by Becky Ward. A breezy, sexy romance filled with passion, intricate dance moves, and a hero and heroine you can really root for. Then we have Iris Kelly Doesn't Date by Ashley Herring Blake. A fake relationship after a horrible one-night stand is anything but an act in this witty and heartfelt new romantic comedy. Then we have Everything Is Not Enough by Lola Akenmaid Ackerstrom. Pretty sure I just butchered that name. This is the highly anticipated follow-up to In Every Mirror, She's Black, focusing on the lives of three black women as they fight their own personal struggles in one of the most egalitarian societies, Sweden. Then we have A Curse for True Love by Stephanie Garber. This is book three in the Once Upon a Broken Heart series. Blood will be shed, 
hearts will be stolen, and true love will be put to the test. Next is Sleepless in Dubai by Sajni Patel. A hilarious, smart, and swoon-worthy rom-com about two teens traveling to Dubai for Diwali. And last on my list is Here Lies Olive by Kate Anderson. When she summons a spirit to answer her questions about death, Olive meets Jay, a hitchhiking ghost trapped in the woods behind the poorhouse where he died. Olive agrees to help Jay find his unmarked grave in exchange for answers about the other side and what comes next. And this week, I added arcs of a few books. First is Only If You're Lucky by Stacey Willingham. I've not read any of her books, and I keep meaning to. I hear they're amazing, so I'm super excited to jump into this one. Also got Not Bad for a Girl by Anastasia Ryan. Loved her You Should Smile More. You should definitely check that one out. Also added Bad Like Us by Gabriela Lepore. And lastly, You Know What You Did by KT Wynn. All of these are courtesy of the publishers through NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. These all release between January and April of 2024, so look for reviews of these after the new year. All right, time to start with this week's reviews. And we'll start by taking a look at Things We Do in the Dark by Jennifer Hillier. This book was first released on July 19th, 2022 by Minotaur Books and was a Goodreads Choice nominee for Best Mystery and Thriller in 2022. The synopsis reads, When Paris Peralta is arrested in her own bathroom, covered in blood, holding a straight razor, her celebrity husband dead in the bathtub behind her, she knows she'll be charged with murder. But as bad as this looks, it's not what worries her the most. With the unwanted media attention now surrounding her, it's only a matter of time before someone from her long-hidden past recognizes her and destroys the new life she's worked so hard to build, along with any chance of a future. 25 years earlier, Ruby Reyes, known as the Ice Queen, was convicted of a similar murder in a trial that riveted Canada in the early 90s. Reyes knows who Paris really is, and when she's unexpectedly released from prison, she threatens to expose all of Paris's secrets. Left with no other choice, Paris must finally confront the dark past she escaped, once and for all, because the only thing worse than a murder charge are two murder charges. I've read a couple of Jennifer Hillier's other books and really enjoyed them. I especially enjoyed Jar of Hearts, mostly because that reveal toward the end I did not see coming at all. Blew me away. With Things We Do in the Dark, Hillier has written a decent mystery with a familiar yet engaging plot, though I will say I wasn't exactly blown away by it. The story begins with Paris Peralta finding herself in a nightmarish situation. Her famous husband's assistant found her in the bathroom of their home covered in blood, razor in her hand, and her husband bleeding out in the bathtub behind her. Paris is arrested and faces a murder charge. However, it is not only the murder charge that troubles Paris. With the relentless media attention now focused on her, she fears that someone from her past will recognize her and unravel the carefully constructed life she's built. The narrative then takes readers back 25 years earlier, introducing Ruby Reyes, aka the Ice Queen. Ruby had been convicted of a similar murder that captivated Canada in the early 1990s. Ruby was sentenced to life in prison, but surprisingly is about to be released. With intimate knowledge of Paris's true identity, Ruby threatens to expose all of Paris's secrets unless Paris pays Ruby a hefty sum. Left with no other option, Paris must finally confront the dark past she had managed to escape, risking not just one murder charge, but two. 
In terms of writing style, Hillier begins with Paris's arrest and interrogation and then flashes back to Paris's past. We see things from both Paris's point of view and a true crime podcaster named Drew, who's covering Ruby's case. Through these two perspectives, we get a full picture of how these two women's lives intersect. The book really does begin with a bang, and I can say that the pacing is pretty even throughout the book, even when it jumps between Paris and Drew, unraveling Paris's past and revealing how she's connected to Ruby. Story is strong, even if it does feel familiar, and I was never bored with the book. I think my biggest problem with this one was that it just felt somewhat formulaic, and I think readers like myself might find themselves drawing comparisons to other similar works. I guessed the connection between the two women pretty early on, and there were really no surprises going forward. The familiarity of the plot prevented this one from being a true standout for me. Additionally, the characters, while complex, didn't fully resonate with me. Although Paris and Ruby have intriguing backstories and personal struggles, their journey, kind of like the story, was expected. I like Paris, I definitely rooted for her, and Ruby really was a piece of work and a decent villain, but again, nothing about them really stands out from other characters that I've read in other mysteries. Overall, Hillier delivers a decent mystery with an engaging plot, however, the book's familiarity and lack of character depth prevented it from truly standing out for me. If you've not read any of this author's books, I would recommend Jar of Hearts or Creep. I enjoyed both of those books more than this one. If you're okay with Familiar and Predictable though, then I would definitely check this one out. It's well written, and I did like the ending, but again, overall, it was just okay. I rated this one 3 stars and gave it a 1 on the scary meter, because I didn't find it scary or even all that creepy. Next, I'll share my thoughts on Please Tell Me by Mike Omer. I received an advanced copy of this book from the publisher through NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. This book will be released on November 7th, 2023 and is published by Thomas and Mercer. The synopsis reads, When eight-year-old Kathy Stone turns up on the side of the road a year after her abduction, the world awaits her harrowing story, but Kathy doesn't say a word. Traumatized by her ordeal, she doesn't speak at all, not even to her own parents. Child therapist Robin Hart is the only one who's had success connecting with the girl. Robin has been using play therapy to help Kathy process her memories. But as their work continues, Kathy's playtime takes a grim turn. A doll looks to stab another doll. A tiny figurine is chained to a plastic toy couch. All of these horrifying moments enacted within a Victorian dollhouse. Every session, another toy dies. But the most disturbing detail? Kathy seems to be play-acting real unsolved murders. Soon, Robin wonders if Kathy not only holds the key to the murders of the past, but if she knows something about the murders of the future. Can Robin unlock the secrets in Kathy's brain and stop a serial killer before he strikes again? Or is Robin's work with Kathy putting her in the killer's sights? This was a nice little mystery that I thought I had figured out early on, but I was wrong, so kudos to the author for being able to trick me. While I was surprised at the nice little twist, I wasn't completely blown away by the overall book. The story kicks off with a young girl walking along a road in the rain. It's clear she's escaped from somewhere and she's completely lost. Turns out the child was reported missing over a year ago and was presumed dead. The child, 8-year-old Kathy Stone, is traumatized to the point of being completely silent, refusing to speak to anyone, including her parents. She's easily triggered by loud noises and clings to her mother. Child therapist Robin Hart becomes determined to help Kathy and is the only one besides the child's mother who can really connect with her. 
Using play therapy, Robin tries to help Kathy process her memories and heal from her traumatic experience. However, as the therapy progresses, things take a pretty dark turn when Kathy begins to reenact what appear to be murders with the dolls in the dollhouse. Each session brings a new, chilling scene with another toy meeting a gruesome fate. It becomes clear to Robin that Kathy might possess knowledge about real-life unsolved murders. This is where the tension in the story ramps up as Robin tries to uncover the truth hidden within Kathy's mind. She knows that Kathy is fragile and needs to proceed slowly, but the police are desperate for answers. They need to stop whoever is killing these women before they claim another victim. And while Robin wants to help stop whoever's behind this and bring Kathy's kidnapper to justice, she knows she has to tread lightly. When Robin begins to act as the mediator between Kathy and the police, she unwittingly places herself in the crosshairs of the big bad. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a little on the fence with this one. The story was engaging enough, but there were parts of the book that felt unnecessary and caused the pace of the book to slow. Some scenes didn't really further the plot and seemed to be nothing more than filler. These scenes really slowed the book down for me. Also, some of the dialogue felt as though the author was trying a little too hard to make it come across as natural. For example, there's a scene where Robin's out with her dog and she's speaking with another character, and in the middle of her dialogue, she tells her dog to stop it. This is likely something that many of us pet owners say several times a day, and many times while we're having a conversation with another person. But when added to the dialogue in the book, it felt weird and, again, unnecessary. And that's just one minor example. As far as the characters go, for the most part, they're all well-developed and have clear motives. I was especially attached to Kathy and Robin. Robin's dedication to helping Kathy is evident throughout the story, and readers will find themselves rooting for her as she navigates through a treacherous path to uncover the truth. Omer's portrayal of Kathy is also notable. The young girl's silence and eerie behavior create an enigmatic aura that adds to the overall sense of unease. Another thing I liked was how the author wrote about the psychological aspects of trauma and its impact on an individual. Through Kathy's story and Robin's attempt to help her deal with her trauma, readers gain insight into the complex psychology of a survivor, as well as the lasting effects of trauma on a young and vulnerable mind. My biggest gripe with the plot was the motive behind the kidnapper and the connection to the murders, and I can't go into it much without giving it all away, so I'll just leave it at that. I also felt that there was a big build during the climax that suddenly fizzled out during the final standoff. I had to reread it a couple of times to make sure I hadn't missed something. All in all, this was a fun read that kept me engaged despite an uneven pace and an ending that fizzled out. Anyone looking for a decent read with an engaging premise will likely enjoy this one. I gave it three stars. Again, I thought it was fine, just didn't blow me away. And I gave it a two on the scary meter. It had some disturbing scenes, but I didn't find it overly scary. And it's break time. Next, we'll take a look at Jimmy Giuliano's Dead Eleven. This book was first published on June 27, 2023 by Dutton. The synopsis reads, Clifford Island. When Willowstone finds these words written on the floor of her deceased son's bedroom, she's perplexed. She's never heard of it before, but she learns it's a tiny island off of Wisconsin's Door County Peninsula, 200 miles from Willow's home. Why would her son write this on his floor? Determined to find answers, 
Willow sets out for the island. After a few days on Clifford, Willow realizes this place is not normal. Everyone seems to be stuck in a particular day in 1994. They wear outdated clothing, avoid modern technology, and perhaps most mystifyingly, watch the O.J. Simpson car chase every evening. When she asks questions, people are evasive, but she learns one thing. Close your curtains at night. High schooler Lily Becker has lived on Clifford her entire life, and she is sick of the island's twisted mythology and adhering to the rules. She's been to the mainland, and everyone is normal there, so why is Clifford so weird? Lily is determined to prove that her islanders' beliefs are a sham. But are they? Five weeks after Willow arrives on the island, she disappears. Willow's brother Harper comes to Clifford searching for his sister, and when he learns the truth, that this island is far more sinister than anyone could have imagined, he is determined to blow the whole thing open, if he can get out alive. Before reading this book, I knew very little about it. All I'd heard was there's an island where everyone is obsessed with the year 1994 and it's creepy. For some reason, I had it in my head that this was some rando island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where someone was doing some sort of social experiment, a la Lost, and I wasn't the biggest fan of that TV show. If you ever watched it, you know what I'm talking about. So I wanted to check the book out, kept putting it off, finally made room for it this month, and I am so happy to say that this one was nothing at all like I was expecting. I was so wrong on the premise. From start to finish, this book had me hooked with its creepy atmosphere, original premise, and engaging characters. I couldn't put it down. For the record, it is nothing like the TV show Lost. The story centers around Willow Stone, a grieving mother who discovers the words Clifford Island written on the floor of her dead son's room. Intrigued and determined to find answers, Willow does some research and finds that Clifford Island is an island in the Great Lakes, just off the coast of Wisconsin. So she embarks on a journey to the island to find the connection to her son. Clifford Island is anything but normal. The residents are all friendly but seem to be stuck firmly in 1994. They wear outdated clothing, they avoid modern technology, God forbid someone sees you with a cell phone on the island. Their strange behavior becomes even more perplexing when Willow discovers that they watch the O.J. Simpson car chase every evening. Eventually, Willow meets Lily Becker, a high school senior who can't wait to get off the island. She's convinced everyone is being brainwashed and is determined to expose the leaders of the island of mind control. But is that really what's happening? Or is there a more sinister reason that the people of the island remain firmly planted in 1994? When Willow disappears, her brother arrives on the island determined to find her, and with Lily's help, the two will either blow the lid off the alleged mind control, or they'll unwittingly unleash something far more sinister than either of them could have imagined. One of the things that I loved the most about this book was the original premise. The concept of a secluded island where time stands still is both fascinating and chilling. The way the author builds suspense and gradually reveals the island's secrets kept me on the edge of my seat. I was constantly guessing and second-guessing, never knowing what was going to happen next. I couldn't wait to find out why everyone was told to keep their curtains closed at night and figure out what exactly the dead things that some claimed to see really were. The characters in the book are all well-developed and relatable. Willow's determination to uncover the truth about the message in her son's room and her subsequent disappearance is gripping. Her brother Harper is a strong and resilient character who eventually becomes the driving force behind unraveling the island's mysteries. And Lily, with her rebellious nature and desire for the truth, adds a touch of complexity to the story. 
All the supporting characters have a purpose in the overall story, and each one plays an important part in the creepy mystery surrounding Clifford Island. Another thing I loved was the style of the book. The story is told from multiple points of view, mostly Willow, Harper, and Lily, and it jumps back and forth in time. Peppered amongst the narrative are snippets of interviews and letters between various characters that help unravel the mystery of the island. It was structured in a way that made for a truly immersive experience and made it difficult to put the book down. Another aspect that I appreciated about the book was the more I read, the creepier it got. As the mystery unravels and the multiple narratives close in, the tension amps up and the chills descend and don't ease up until literally the very last word. My only minor complaint with this one was in the reveal of why and how Willow was drawn to the island. I can't say more about it without giving some really big plot points away though. I will say it seemed like a bit of a stretch but I was able to put it aside for the most part and enjoy the rest of the book. People have been all over the place with this one as far as reviews go. Some either love it or hate it. I am definitely on the love train with this one. I love when I go into a book feeling like I'll likely come out at best in the middle of the road and then end up being blown away by it. If you're looking for a creepy and suspenseful story, look no further than Dead Eleven. I gave it four and a half stars on my blog and story graph. I knocked off half a star due to the why and how Willow was drawn to the island that I mentioned earlier. I rounded it up to five stars on Goodreads. I also gave this one a four and a half on the scary scale because there were some pretty creepy moments in this one. And next we'll take a look at How to Sell a Haunted House by Grady Hendrix. This book was first published on January 17th, 2023 by Berkeley. The synopsis reads... When Louise finds out her parents have died, she dreads going home. She doesn't want to leave her daughter with her ex and fly to Charleston. She doesn't want to deal with her family home stuffed to the rafters with the remnants of her father's academic career and her mother's lifelong obsession with puppets and dolls. She doesn't want to learn how to live without the two people who knew and loved her best in the world. Most of all, she doesn't want to deal with her brother Mark, who never left their hometown, gets fired from one job after another, and resents her success. Unfortunately, she'll need his help to get the house ready for sale because it'll take more than some new paint on the walls and clearing out a lifetime of memories to get this place on the market. But some houses don't want to be sold, and their home has other plans for both of them. This was my third Grady Hendrix book, having previously read My Best Friend's Exorcism and Final Girl Support Group. And I gotta say, I think this one may have been my favorite of the three, though I hear the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires is his best, but that's still on my list. That said, I had a ton of fun with this one. It's creepy, funny, and fast-paced, in my opinion, a must-read for fans of horror with a touch of comedy. The story follows Louise, a successful single mother who finds herself faced with the daunting task of selling her family home after her parents' untimely death. She's reluctant to return to her hometown, but is determined to make the trip short and quick. She's hoping she and her brother Mark will be able to put their differences aside and quickly get her parents' affairs in order so she can go home, put all this behind her. But that's easier said than done. Mark isn't exactly cooperative, and getting the house ready to sell ends up being quite the undertaking, mostly because all the dolls and puppets that her mother collected have to be cleared out of the house before the realtor will even consider showing it. But getting rid of the dolls is no easy task, especially one named Pupkin, who literally has a mind of his own and is determined to not only stay in the house, but is hell-bent on remaining in Louise's life one way or another. 
Like a lot of people, clowns, dolls, and puppets scare the shit out of me, so a full house of haunted dolls is my worst nightmare. The very first time Louise walks into her parents' house and finds the TV on and the dolls seemingly watching the TV, I knew I was in for one hell of a ride, and the author didn't disappoint. Hendrix's vivid description of the haunted dolls and puppets sent shivers down my spine and had me passing sideways glances at all of my dog's little stuffed toys that he likes to chew on. One thing that sets Grady Hendrix's books apart from other horror novels is his ability to inject humor into the darkest of situations. The witty banter between Louise and Mark, especially in tense and scary situations, provides much-needed levity, making the story feel relatable and authentic. Hendrix's writing style is engaging and fast-paced, ensuring that you won't be able to put the book down. I love the characters in the story, from Louise to Mark and their crazy family and even the little psycho asshole puppet Pupkin all had a purpose and drove the plot forward. How to Sell a Haunted House also tackles themes of family, loss, and redemption. The relationship between Louise and Mark is a central focus of the story as they are forced to confront their past and work together to overcome the malevolent spirits within the house. It's a story of healing and growth, showing that even in the face of the supernatural, the power of love and forgiveness can prevail. This book is a masterful blend of horror, family drama, and a touch of humor. So if you're in need of a bone-chilling read that will leave you entertained and slightly spooked, this book is the perfect choice. I gave it 4.5 stars on my blog and Storygraph and a 4 on Goodreads. I gave it a four and a half on the scary scale because all those damn dolls, especially Pupkin and his caca wee wee battle cry, freaked me the fuck out. And I'll close out today's reviews with my thoughts on Bright Young Women by Jessica Knoll. This book was first published by Simon & Schuster on September 19th, 2023, and was one of my Book of the Month selections that same month. The synopsis reads, January 1978. A serial killer has terrorized women across the Pacific Northwest, but his existence couldn't be further from the minds of the vibrant young women at the top sorority on Florida State University's campus in Tallahassee. Tonight is a night of promise, excitement, and desire, but Pamela Schumacher, president of the sorority, makes the unpopular decision to stay home, a decision that unwittingly saves her life. Startled awake at 3 a.m. by a strange sound, she makes the fateful decision to investigate. What she finds behind the door is a scene of implausible violence. Two of her sisters dead, two others maimed. Over the next few days, Pamela is thrust into a terrifying mystery inspired by the crime that's captivated public interest for more than four decades. On the other side of the country, Tina Cannon has found peace in Seattle after years of hardship. A chance encounter brings 25-year-old Ruth Wachowski into her life, a young woman with painful secrets of her own, and the two form an instant connection. When Ruth goes missing from Lake Sammamish State Park in broad daylight, surrounded by thousands of beachgoers on a beautiful summer day, Tina devotes herself to finding out what happened to her. When she hears about the tragedy in Tallahassee, she knows it's the man the papers refer to as the all-American sex killer. Determined to make him answer for what he did to Ruth, she travels to Florida on a collision course with Pamela, and one last impending tragedy. Bright Young Women is a story about two women from opposite sides of the country who become sisters in their fervent pursuit of the truth. It proposes a new narrative inspired by evidence that's been glossed over for decades in favor of more saleable headlines, that the so-called brilliant and charismatic serial killer from Seattle was far more average than the countless books, 
movies, and primetime specials have led us to believe, and that it was the women whose lives he cut short who were the exceptional ones. If you were alive in the 1970s or 80s, you're probably very familiar with the name Ted Bundy, one of America's most infamous serial killers. Within the last few years, Netflix did a documentary on him, as well as a movie starring Zac Efron. The problem is, as is the case with most serial killer coverage, when you hear their names, you immediately think of the crimes they committed, but we know little to nothing about their victims. What I loved about this book is that it takes a fresh and subjective approach to Bundy's reign of terror. Rather than focusing on the murderer himself, he doesn't even get a name in this book. The author tells a version of the story from the perspectives of two young women whose lives were deeply affected by Bundy's heinous crimes. The story kicks off in 1978, a time when a serial killer has been terrorizing women in the Pacific Northwest, far away from Florida State University. But when Pamela Schumacher, the president of a sorority of Florida State, awakens to a strange sound at 3 a.m., she stumbles upon a horrific scene that will change her life forever. In 1974, Tina Cannon meets Ruth Wachowski, a young woman with family struggles and a dark secret. The two form an instant connection and develop a beautiful relationship, but tragedy strikes when Ruth goes missing in broad daylight at Lake Sammamish State Park. Determined to uncover the truth behind Ruth's disappearance, Tina makes her way across the country where she meets Pamela, and the two women work together to make sure the murderer is not only captured, but also convicted of his crimes. What sets bright young women apart from other books and documentaries that have focused on this man is the author's ability to present a fresh narrative by focusing not on the murderer, but rather on two women whose lives are radically impacted by his heinous actions. By placing the focus on the women affected by him, the novel highlights their strength, resilience, and determination in the face of unimaginable adversity, and less on how brilliant and charismatic he allegedly was. In fact, Null challenges this perception, which was constantly presented in any press he received, and instead indicates that maybe he wasn't exactly brilliant or charismatic, but rather, he was just a slimy braggart who had way too much self-confidence, and people mistook that as charisma and intelligence. The book is immersive and engaging, and unfolds through alternating perspectives, allowing the reader to see things from both Pamela's and Ruth's perspectives. The author's attention to detail and meticulous research add an element of authenticity to the story, making it all the more chilling and compelling. It was interesting to read the story through these two very different lenses. Both women are victims, but in different ways. Pamela wasn't attacked, but did see the attacker leave the sorority house. Two of her friends ended up dead, and two others were gravely injured. On the other hand, Ruth did end up being murdered by him, but before this happens, we really get to know who Ruth is before she was murdered, which we never get when we hear about serial killers. One of the strongest aspects of the novel is the character development. Pamela and Ruth are both relatable. Null skillfully captures their struggles, fears, and desires, making them strong female characters and individuals with whom readers can empathize. It is worth noting that the names in the book aren't the names of the actual victims, and while their stories are very similar to what actually happened, this is a work of fiction. That said, the author does a great job of sticking to the facts while also making the characters her own. In my opinion, this is a must-read for fans of true crime and psychological thrillers. The author has masterfully taken a well-known story and transformed it into a riveting tale that challenges our preconceptions and celebrates the resilience of the women who refuse to be defined by tragedy. 
This book is a testament to the power of storytelling and its ability to shed light on forgotten narratives. It will leave readers both heartbroken and inspired. It challenges us to look past the monsters who commit these awful crimes and reminds us that the victims are more than just a name. I really like this book and I rated it four stars. I gave it a one and a half on the scary meter. It's captivating, but not super scary in my opinion. That's probably because of how familiar I already was with the case. That's all I have for you today. Don't forget to rate and follow on whatever podcast app you're listening on. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram for all things bookish. The handle there is at just read it already pod. You can also find links to all the books that I talked about today on the website at justreaditalready.com. Be sure to join me next week when I wrap up my month of scary reads with Riley Sager's Lock Every Door, Stephen Graham Jones' My Heart is a Chainsaw, Chuck Tingle's Camp Damascus, Danielle Valentine's Delicate Condition, and William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.